I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome to another edition of Failed Critics Review. I'm Steve Norman, joined, like I always am, by the wonderful James Diamond. Oh, hello. The excellent Owen Hughes. Hello. And the brilliant Jerry McCauley. Hello, I'm loving these compliments this week. (laughs) (laughs) Don't get used to it. Oh. That's that's your quota for the year now. I'm going to be horrible for until Christmas. What happened to you, Graham, today, yeah? A, a nation-saving vigilante, Steve. You decided to, to not allow the head and be horrible to film again. Um, no, I'm, I'm currently in the process of joining a gym so I can get into shape to fight crime. <laughs> the, no one wants a fat superhero. It's not going to work. No, no. I mean, if I can't chase a you know a, a criminal a hundred yards, then what's really the point? I'm just going to look stupid. That's right. So C- chronic and blunt, man. They're, 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 one of those is fat. Oh, crime. Yeah. Crime, you've got another six months, and then and then I'll be coming. <laughs> so, what we're bringing back this week, though, is the quote quiz. Uh, it's been it's been away for a while, mainly because I forgot. And because Jerry wins every time. Well, Me yes. and Owen won two key nominees. <laughs> <laughs> Jerry is three 0 in the lead. Win- three, aren't you? Winning two nil up. No, he's won every single one we've done so far. <laughs> I would say something, but I'm just too busy grinning at myself here. So, <laughs> so here is the latest edition, the latest quote quiz. You're a hell of an instinctive pilot. Maybe too James good. Oh, James is in. Top Gun. It is Top Gun. Jeez, I shout my name, I just shouted the film. <laughs> <laughs> For somebody who's trouncing everyone, Jerry, you should really know the rules. Yeah, do, you know what's, do you know what's even more? about that is the fact that I've not even seen Top Gun I just guessed because of what's been in the news. Yes, that segues rather aptly into um, well I suppose us paying tribute to Tony Scott who <laughs> passed away this week and was at the helm of the fantastic Top Gun among other films. Yes, um, yeah, I, I think... I- my views on Top Gun are already quite well known, so I'm not going to go into those. But did you cry honest, at Top Gun? Because you do seem to cry at a lot of films. No, no, <laughs> I, I didn't cry at Top Gun, believe it or not. Um, I have nearly shed a tear though at uh, True Romance. Um, uh, yeah, basically Tony Scott. He, he I, I do love a few. Um, there's a good few of his films that I really. Like. I think Enemy of the State is a fantastic film. I actually that is quite, the only one of his films that I've seen. Oh, it's, it's a great film. Um, but yeah, if you've not seen True Romance, Quentin Tarantino says it's his best script. Uh, but it's one that 
Tony Scott directed. Uh, I remember in 2000, I think it was, I paid for a screening um, at the cinema for the second anniversary of meeting the woman who's now my wife. Um, and that film itself, it taught me so much about love and it taught me about being awesomely cool and violent as well. Uh, it's a brilliant film. And I just, was that um, you... what was that? Sorry. Was that how your date went? It's like love and then being awesomely violent and cool. Yes, that, that, that's, I think that's how every great relationship should be. You need, you need the, the light with the dark there. Um, and I, I did see on Twitter this week, um, Christian Slater, who was the star of True Romance, um, I think he summed it up best when he said, I've always loved you, Tony, always have, always will. Um, and, yeah, we'll miss you, Tony Scott. Yeah, I mean, lots of good kind of action thrillers under his name. Yeah, um, he, he really was unashamedly commercial, but always still did something different and something mm-hmm. quite exciting. It might not always have worked. Um, it might not have always been the best film. Um, but what I did love is the fact that he... He was never pretentious. He never tried to. Um, he, he he wasn't afraid of just saying, "Look, here's a great fun action film. I think you'll enjoy it." Uh, and and I think we'll we'll miss that. Yeah, I mean, the last film that he made was was Unstoppable, which was um, partly based on a true story about a um, runaway train, and yes. that was that was a you know a, a good action film in itself. I mean, I've not been such engrossed in, in something on the screen about trains since Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if that's the best review we can come up with, I'm sure yeah. I'd be happy with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, I mean, yeah, and apparently they were, he, he and, him and Tom Cruise were, uh, were um, looking into making a sequel to Top Gun. Yeah, yes. that's right. I heard about that. I'm not sure, though, about whether that would have ever happened or not. Isn't Tom Cruise a bit egocentric now to do something like that? But it's a shame that, um, you know, we didn't get to see another film from Tony uh, Scott. Yeah, um, apparently Tom Cruise was at, uh, actually the weekend it happened, he was at a military base apparently doing research. So um, I, I think he was genuinely into that idea. Um, but yeah, yeah, um, it, it did, and also he, I'm really, really looking forward to seeing uh, next week when I go to Bowie Fest, uh, covering Bowie Fest for Bell Critics. Uh, Tony, one of Tony Scott's first films, The Hunger, is playing there, starring David Bowie, Susan Sarandon, and Catherine Deneuve as some kind of lesbian vampire. So that sounds very entertaining as well. So thanks for all the entertainment, Tony. Yes. Um, later on, we'll be reviewing the new Pixar film, Brave. But before that, we'll be reviewing what else we've been watching this week. James, would you like to start us off? Yes. Um, well, this week uh, I managed to see two films on the big screen. So the first one I'm going to talk about is, um, well, actually, no, I'll just quickly mention, I did see Cape Fear, the 1962 Robert Mitchum uh, and Gregory Peck film last night. I won't go into a lot of detail about that, but just to say it was fantastic. Um we spoke about Robert Mitchum. I think it was Owen talking about Robert Mitchum in Night of the Hunter a few mm-hmm. podcasts back. Um, I've still not seen Night of the Hunter again. I saw it years ago, uh, and I can't really remember. But Robert Mitchum as the villain in Cape Fear is also, is incredible in this. Absolutely magnetic. Uh, it's such a brilliant film. I, I would recommend anyone going out and see it, mainly because it also means that brilliant Simpsons episode... Uh, with um oh Bart, sideshow Bob uh, trying to kill Bart with 
die, bark, die, bark, 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 um, <laughs> that really, uh, with the rakes and the music and everything, um, you'll get, you'll get that even more if you've seen the original film. It's another one of those great things where you go, oh, that episode of The Simpsons makes even more sense now. Um, is it, so, is yeah. it better than the, the remake? Can I just ask a quick question? I've, I've not seen the remake, but I've heard a lot. Of, I, I can't imagine them. Put it this way. I don't want to watch the remake. I watched this film and it was near perfect. And I cannot imagine, even though it's Scorsese and De Niro, I can't imagine the remake getting near it without being a little bit redundant. So. Uh, I, that's, I that's a pretty good, good review. Saying I, I don't want to see the remake. That's, uh, about <laughs> yeah. the point of this. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, the main film I want to talk about is, I uh, saw The Expendables 2. Um, directed by Simon West, who directed Con Air, but most importantly of all, starring Sly, The Stafe, Dolph Lundgren, Arnie, Bruce Willis, Jean-Claude Van Damme, and some other guys who, <laughs> because I don't know much about Ultimate Fighting and stuff like that, I'm not really <laughs> sure who they are, uh, but I have seen them in the original film. So, um, yeah, basically, Sly and the other action OAPs back for another round of explosions and terrible dialogue. Now, I got excited about the first one, and then it disappointed me. Uh, I think I said this to Jerry, possibly off air last week when we were talking about the Expendables, but I enjoyed this one a lot more. Um, it steals from great action films of the 80s. It steals from terrible action films of the 80s. Um, Sly and uh, Statham's bromance, basically, is one of the most endearing double acts I've seen in recent Hollywood memory. Uh Sadly, the rest of the non, the rest of the bits where they're not shoot, shoot, stab, stab, explode, punch, kick, um, is a bit ropey, to be honest. Um, <laughs> some of the dialogue is absolutely atrocious. Uh, and, and at times it's almost like you think, are they not taking themselves seriously? Is this like, is this a parody of action films or is this genuinely what Sly thinks is great dialogue? Um, uh, yeah, so. Yeah, the dialogue, not great, but there is one uh, brilliant bit where um, it's revealed that Dolph Lundgren's character gave up a career in chemical engineering to become a bouncer, which is a lovely... Uh, Dolph Lundgren is actually the comic relief in these films, and he is really funny. But I only then found out that in real life, Dolph Lundgren really did abandon a career as a scientist to become the bodyguard for his girlfriend at the time lunatic disco mistress Grace Jones which is a nice little bit of trivia <laughs> and then he became an action star um, the plot in itself is pretty non-existent um, it, it could well have been ripped from one of the films that any of these guys starred in in the 80s quite possibly uh, brutal revenge stories save the world putting the expendables against uh, a reborn but not literally Jean-Claude Van Damme who is great in this, Jean-Claude Van Damme Probably one of the best bits of this film. He he really excels as the pantomime villain. Um, and it, in the film, he's actually called Villain. And when you look it up on IMDb, it's Villain as his name. <laughs> this, is, this is about how much um, inspiration Sylvester Stallone has got. But, but when you read uh, things like that, surely they're, they're taking the mick out yeah, of they it are, themselves. Um, all of the expendables have got really stupid. I, one of the worst. Um, Jason Statham's called Lee Christmas, for God's sake. <laughs> but, I would love it if he was related to Lloyd Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm starting that rumour now, officially. Yeah, He's Lloyd Christmas's younger brother, and Dumb and Dumber and The Expendables are in the same film universe. 
imagine that crossover. <laughs> oh, I can't wait for that. <laughs> they're, well, they're, uh, apparently they're working on the Dumb and Dumber 2 at the moment, so that that could... I, just, I just despair about Hollywood at times. <laughs> and didn't they have Dumb and Dumber or whatever it yeah. was called? Yeah. They did. They did have that. This apparently is Jim Carrey and Jeff uh, Bridges, who is oh, also right. in the newsroom at the moment. Um, uh, yeah, yeah newsroom as well. Um, Terry Crews, who I think is a, is a former American footballer yeah. or something like that. Yeah, um, he's in The Expendables and he's also brilliant in Newsroom at the moment. That's how I knew him uh, this time around. But yeah, there's some brilliant kills. Uh, there's some really, really entertaining kills, actually. I'm not going to spoil them for anyone. There's a great cameo, although I'm not going to spoil it, but if you've seen the trailer, you'll probably know who it is. Um, is it, is it, they do play is it, is it um, an also a with, a featuring or an and? Um, oh, I can't remember. It's one of those. Yeah, it's. Um, but weirdly, before he appears, they play um, the Man with No Name music from the Fistful of Dollars trilogy, and it's like, what? They got Clint? Oh no, they haven't got Clint. Um, they've got someone who is not Clint, but it's still quite a funny action cameo type thing there. Um, the only thing you could fault it for, I think, is a lack of ambition. Um, it doesn't want to be. It clearly doesn't want to be any better than it is. Um, it's very content to be a 7 out of 10 action film poking fun at itself, which is fine. Um, but it did make me think that there is a, a film out there to be made which deconstructs the action genre uh, in the way that Joss Whedon and Wes Craven have done with horror. And I think it would be really interesting to find someone that actually go, now let's properly deconstruct the 80s action genre. That would be great fun. Like I say, it's a pure action film. Uh, and it, it actually succeeds where films like The Bourne Legacy failed by the fact that it doesn't take itself too seriously and doesn't want to be anything more than a fun two-hour action film. That's why I finished with my fate. I did have to write down a quote. At one point, Jean-Claude Van Damme uh, says someone about a tattoo on his neck. This is the symbol of the goat, the pet of Satan. Uh, and that's that's just an example of the brilliant dialogue you get. <laughs> <laughs> Looking forward to Expendables at three, then. Yeah, I think I also I think Owen saw it. Did did you kind of agree with me, Owen? Yeah, I think it's seven out of ten action film is the best way to describe it. It's um, got a lot of in jokes between all the characters. So I think as well, I took my wife to see it because sometimes she's got kind of like these trashy action films as well, which is great. But uh, she hasn't seen a lot of the same films that I have that star these guys in. So she kind of found it a little bit boring. Where I was just kind of like, oh yes, I absolutely get that. That's brilliant. Some of the parts in the film, um, but the, the thing that d- it actually depressed me reading up about it afterwards, Sylvester Stallone is nearly seventy years old. Is <laughs> you know <laughs> mid sixties, and I'm thinking, oh my, he's past his mid sixties, and I'm just yeah. that's so depressing. And when Arnie delivers, I'll be back. You just you, I actually cringed at that point because yeah. there was no menace to it whatsoever. And then after that, I saw. Both Arnie and Sly have got big marquee action films coming out after this. Like, um, a Bullet in the Head and um, Last Stand or something like that. And yet they both look like... Although, to be fair, Sly does look in a lot better shape than Arnie does. Arnie looks like a... To be fair, you don't realise Sly is nearly 70. Yeah, Arnie's let himself go. He's been too busy being Dominator for a while. Exactly. You know, he's exactly. not to training all the way through. Arnie's a big man and he's out of shape, I can tell you. Actually, the one thing actually that I did notice about Sylvester Stallone as well whilst watching it, he is harder to understand than Bane in Dark Knight Rises. I think that 
you know, it's always like, I'm not having a go at him for being, you know, kind of physically disabled, but he was really struggling to enunciate all of his words, and I found it a yeah. I've, I've found he's a bit like that since I first watched Rocky, though. I mean, he's a bit. Oh yeah, but this doesn't make much sense. Style. He, he 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 doesn't enunciate his words particularly well. No, but he was really sort of slurring through most of this. I just thought that was something that stood out for me. Well, Owen, as you're already talking, what have you been watching this week? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Fine. Um, I watched quite a few films from the um, Sight and Sound list, so I saw three of those films. Passion of Joan of Arc was fantastic. But the film that I want to talk about most uh, is a Tim Burton film, luckily enough. One that I it kind of arrived through the post from um, Love Film, and I just thought, well, I'll just stick it on. I've got a spare couple of hours now, so I'll watch that. Uh, it was Ed Wood. And it's the story of, well, it's a kind of biopic of, uh, or biopic. How do you pronounce that word, by the way? I say biopic. Okay. I'm going to say definitive. I'm going to continue to say biopic then. It was a biopic of Edward, uh, the famous, uh, famously bad B-movie filmmaker. Uh, but actually, it's kind of, a, a, a brilliant Tim Burton film, and I never thought I'd say that. Um, Batman Returns, I've, we've discussed before, I quite like. I think that's probably mm. the best Batman film. But actually, this just it was just fantastic. I really, really enjoyed it. And I went into the film without actually realising what it was about. I just kind of got the DVD out of the case, put it in the player and watched it. And it, and it clicked a little bit later on. It's Edward D. Wood Jr. of Plan 9 from Out of Space fame. So that was a bit embarrassing. But I gradually pieced it together as different characters appeared on the screen, you know, Vampira and Paul Johnson and that kind of thing. And of course, Bella Lugosi, who is played by Martin Lando, who is utterly, utterly fantastic in this. I mean, he's the real standout star. Johnny Depp is great as Edward. He's full of this optimism and wonderment and kind of gets across this genuine enthusiasm for the film industry that I'm sure Ed has. But yeah, Martin Lando is Bella Lugosi. He's just the absolute star here. Such a convincing performance, a kind of one that pays homage to the ghosty rather than turning him into a caricature. I mean, lots of his films quite silly and over the top. Um, but it doesn't really poke fun at anybody in a mean way. It kind of has a laugh with it, you know. Um, but with the ghosty, it, it seems quite heartfelt um, tribute to him. Um, but, you know, it's, it's great to see as well. And I think it comes across that Burton is a fan of both of them. Um, and it, as I say, I went into it without knowing what to expect. But I, what I got was a film that was quite fun. Um, it was, I, I love some of the aspects of it. For example, it's shot all in black and white, which I think gave it this great B-movie code of its own. I liked how the whole thing came together towards the end and it just sort of clipped into place halfway. Kind of, that, you've got it now, you know what's happening. And yeah, but, you know, I was a bit shocked how much I enjoyed it, because as I say. I'm not a fan of Tim Burton. Uh, I won't keep rating him for the rest of every podcast, but I was set up to kind of be disappointed by it, and I think maybe because I went in with low expectations, I absolutely really enjoyed it. So it's not covered in all that horrible gothic theme that he puts to all of his films and there's, in all of his films, and there's none of this awful, you know, musical numbers that crop up and do absolutely nothing for the story. It was a genuinely heartfelt film with great performances um, and if you've seen Plan 9 from Outer Space or 
any of Edwards of the film. It, I think it enhances the film because it is just a, a great tribute to that. It's great to see how all those people came together to make this film. So I really enjoyed it. And it doesn't have Helena Bonham Carter in. She's not in it yet. I don't think she's in it yet, is he? But anyway, no, she's not oh, in it. So... It's one of his films that doesn't have her in it, so it counts. It's good. <laughs> yeah, it's a good way to judge a Tim Burton film. Well, the film that I watched this week was Twelve Monkeys, the 1995 film starring Bruce Willis and Brad Pitt. Um, Bruce Willis plays a criminal who's in prison in a post-apocalyptic future. Uh, Earth was ravaged by a virus and he gets sent back in time to try and stop the virus happening where he meets Brad, Brad Pitt's character who's a mental patient um, who also likes to protest against animal rights and Brad Pitt has to try and sort out the future um, but is a troubled character himself it is not as confusing as Primer I was going to say Steve you keep punishing yourself with these <laughs> these multiple time universe plots yes it's definitely less confusing than Primer. It's actually a really good film. It's, um, you know, it, it, it plays on the time travel aspect quite well. Um, Bruce Willis and Brad Pitt are both excellent in it. Um, there's a couple of twists, but the story reaches a, a sensible and, and good conclusion as well. I don't want to root, I don't, there's not much you can say about it in case people haven't seen it, but it's so old that I guess a lot of people probably have. I mean, have any of you seen it? Yeah, I'd really like it. Yeah. I was, I, have to admit, I haven't seen it, but I, I've always been interested by it, but intrigued by it, but I, no, I haven't seen it. I yet. think I think I mentioned it on my um, uh, directors I've fallen out of love with, um, because I think this is the last good Terry Gilliam film I've seen. Mm. This is sort of the way that the time travel aspect doesn't seem to work quite well. So there's times where Bruce Willis's character pops up in you know before the 1996 where he needs to be. And he ends up sort of in a in a photo from World War One, and he gets spotted that way, and it's quite cleverly done with that. Yeah, and Bruce Willis's character is actually quite complex because he's a criminal. If he gets, if he succeeds in his mission, going back into the past and stopping this virus, he gets a pardon. But then, surely, if he stops the virus, then the future won't happen. So he probably won't be a criminal, and the pardon will be irrelevant. Um, but he also suffers from, with visions of a shooting at an airport, and it all ties in really well at the end. Um, but yes, if you like films that involve time travel that aren't as confusing as Primer, then then watch Twelve Monkeys. Is it like um, what's that Ashton Kutcher Butterfly Effect? Does it kind of follow the same principles as that? Where... I've not seen Butterfly Effect, so you'll have to ask okay. James if he's seen it because he's seen Twelve uh, Monkeys. No, I've not seen Butterfly Effect. Um, I, there, okay. there isn't. It hasn't got. Uh, from what I know of Butterfly Effect, I don't think it is the same. I don't think there's lots of going back and changing things and not so much of right. that anyway. It's it's quite a confusing film, but I do remember I watched it before um, I had the internet. So I, I couldn't go online and find out what happened like right. I did with Primer, and I still felt I understood it. I've not, <laughs> found, I've not found a chart for 12 months yes. to explain what's going on. <laughs> Um, finally then, Jerry, what have you been watching this week? 
Um, this week, the film I want to talk about this week is, I think it's one that has been covered on here already, actually, uh, Dreams of a Life, which is a documentary from last year, if I remember rightly. Um, and I think, James, have you talked about it on here before? I can't remember if I've talked about it. I've definitely seen it this year. I saw it in February, I think, this year. Um, so I saw it before we started doing the podcast, and I might have mentioned it as one of my also rans on favourite documentaries. Yeah. Maybe. Um, basically, for those of you that haven't heard of this, it made quite a lot of the critics list last year, actually, a lot of the, like, the top tens of the year and things like that. Um, it's telling, I can't really describe it, it's a bit of a crazy story. It was a woman, this is a real true story, um, and she was in a flat in London for three years, dead, with the TV on. Uh, no one realised at all, no one came looking for her, no one, no one missed her, really. Um, it was a busy street in the middle of London, so, you know, it was all the life. I think she lived above a shopping centre, so, you know, everything's passing by, and she was just up there, slowly rotting in this, in this room. Um, and she was surrounded by Christmas presents, so she'd been wrapping Christmas presents when she died. Um, they only found her because the bailiffs broke in, because she was in some serious uh, rent arrears, uh, and that's how they found her. Like, it's basically, the, the documentary makers saw this in the paper, um, and we're really fascinated by how this could happen and how, you know, someone could sort of withdraw so completely from society that no one would find them for over three years. Uh, and what it consists of is, is sort of piecing together what her life was and trying to find out who she was. Because obviously, you know, when, when someone like that dies in such a situation, it's pretty hard to work out why. Um, and it's talking with people who knew her through her various stages of her life, you know, friends, uh, ex-boyfriends, things like that. And they sort of piece together the, the whole story of her life. And uh, it's very interesting. It's terribly sad. Um, you know, obviously you know the ending, so there's no real twists in the, uh, in the end of the tale. But the, the narrative of actually of her life and sort of more and more being revealed about how she went through life and what kind of person she was and, and different experiences she had is still very interesting. It makes a kind of narrative of itself. Uh, it's very well made, um, quite, you know, quite a sympathetic thing, but also it, it's still very insightful about her and, and, and sort of isn't afraid to maybe show negative sides of a character and things like that. And the, the interviews with the people are very telling. Um, and you know, it's, it's just very sad that, that all these people could know her and yet she could withdraw so completely that no one, not even she has three sisters and, and no one got tried to contact her. I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible. Um, and it sort of manages to hold, even though that initial story is, is quite incredible and very uh, affecting, it still manages to hold you through the whole film, which I think is the real skill and success of the, the, the documentary makers in this case. It's very interesting. Um, it's not the best documentary I've ever seen, but it was certainly very, very good. Uh, well worth a watch, particularly if you're, if, you know, if you're British and you sort of live in a city. It, it's quite telling, a bit of an indictment of sort of modern city living and how we, we can withdraw from it completely. Uh, but I'd like to think someone would find me before three years. I mean, fucking hell. Yeah. Sorry, is this set in Britain then? It's, 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 it's in London, I believe, yeah. Yeah, well, I, mean, I, just, I don't know why, I just assumed it was American. No, uh, that's really... It's documentary as well, so like, yeah. it's kind of piecing her life back together and she was in central one of the shopping centres in some flat, I think. Um, I can't yeah. remember exactly where, but she lived all over London as well, so like, as they're sort of going through her life, she moved around quite a lot. Um, so it's very much, I think if you, if you lived in London or had lived in London or, or were more familiar with it than I am, I think it would probably be even more affecting because it would seem very local and very real. But even 
you know, I mean, I'm not particularly familiar with London myself, but it really is very, very much very modern, very British, and it's, it's sort of her life through the 80s and 90s, and, and right to, I think it was 2003 she died, um, or it might have been 2006, I can't remember, it was 2003 she died, and they found her in 2006, but it, it's weird, it's very weird, I mean, James will testify to that. I mean, where, yeah. where, just in case any listeners want to watch it, where did you find that? Um, you... It is now out, yeah, generally available on, on home entertainment formats, shall I we say. I think it's on, it's on one of the, it's on Netflix, it might be Netflix US, I'm not sure. It's definitely available for streaming, and I know you can get it in uh, places like iTunes and the Google Play Store, so you can rent it digitally. I've not seen a hard copy of it yet. Uh, the director is someone called Carol Morley, very interesting uh, documentary maker. Um, but yeah, it's brilliant the way it takes one person's story and basically says, this is Britain today. It, it takes a very, very small insular story, but it tells a story of, uh, like you say, living in a modern city in Britain these days. Um, and yeah, I, came, I saw it in the cinema and I came out. I couldn't really talk to anyone for about an hour afterwards. It really, really profoundly affected me. Uh, we went to see it for someone's birthday treat. And I was, bizarre choice of film for that. Um, but yeah, it was, yeah, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's one of my favourite documentaries from the last two years, definitely. Has, has it made a northerner like yourself, Jerry, even more scared of London? <laughs> scared? <laughs> I just don't think it's worth twice the price of anywhere else, that's all. I would just also, from the perspective of someone who doesn't cry or get affected by films, it's not going to make like silent for an hour. It's just, you know, James cries at the dark night and stuff. So. <laughs> James, James also drinks a lot by the sounds of it. So, I mean, I don't know the two are related. He's very in touch with his emotions. Yes. Um, yes. Well, should we move on to Brave? Uh, yeah. Um, oh, should we just say what we're doing next week and stuff as well? Nice little break there, isn't it? Sorry, Steve, doing your job again for you. We, we all keep stepping in. <laughs> well, I'll be able to have a week off soon at this rate. Yeah, I know. <laughs> um, yeah, just say next week's review, we're, we're reviewing Total Recall, the remake of the classic Paul Verhoeven Arnie um, vehicle starring Colin Farrell and Kate Beckinsale and directed by Kate Beckinsale's husband, Len Wiseman, is it? from the Underworld series. Uh, so that's our main review next week. The triple bill coming up later this week is films that we'd like to see based on true stories. And also next week, I will be uh, reporting live, kind of in a way. Uh, we're doing a special podcast for Bowie Fest, the first ever festival devoted to the film work of David Bowie. I'm going to be covering the festival for Failed Critics. I'll be down there. I'll be tweeting from there. I'll be blogging from there. And we'll be putting together a special Bowie-centric podcast to follow in uh, the week after. So that's what's coming up on Failed Critics. And, of course, you can find us at failedcritics.com or facebook.com slash failedcritic. Lovely. Well, Brave, then, the latest uh, effort from Pixar, the studio that have brought you the likes of Toy Story and Monsters, Inc. and Finding Nemo, etc., tells the story, well... Based in what I believe to be modern-day Scotland. I'll have to check our podcast out now. Check we've not got Scottish listeners. No. First readers, I would like to just point out the rest of us aren't as weirdly stunted and insular as Steve is. It certainly looked like modern-day Scotland to me. Um, (laughs) Marie is a princess who is at the age where 
the king and the queen want to marry her off to the son of someone from another clan um, because that's a tradition but she doesn't want to do that she likes to fire bow and arrows and, and kill things and, and is a bit more tomboyish so she falls out of her mother big time and the story goes from there really without giving too much away uh, first thing I'll say is as all Pixar films do it looks absolutely fantastic yeah, like, I, I, it's one of their best-looking films. Vi- I'm not, the use of colours with it. Yeah, just I think it is their best-looking film, full stop. Yeah, and I only saw it in 2D. Um, yeah, I, I didn't want to shut out the extra for 3D. Vi- I mean, visually, I think it's the most ambitious settings they've given a Pixar film in terms of just, yeah, you know, in terms of you know Scottish valleys and rivers and lakes and hills and forests and everything. I think um, Wally was probably. I don't know, this was definitely quite ambitious, but Wally was also quite ambitious with its um, designs of play. I mean, for, for example, the, the making of the um, all the people on the, the spaceship fingers being quite overweight and flat mm. and stuff was quite in brave, I think. But yeah, See what you've design, done there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But the, I, yeah, no, I think I think you're right there. They're both fantastic technical achievements. I just think Brave looked beautiful, but uh, it just was breathtaking at times. See, I, I don't think it, it really. I don't. It was very good. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to slight it or anything. But I think of the Pixar films I've seen, it was it was very good. But I think you know some of the scenes in all the films are, are, are better than it. Actually, I was I was surprised. So I think as much as anything, it's depicting quite natural. Sort of, you know, it is that that Scottish. Obviously, there's there's great beauty in, in the Scottish countryside, but it's quite natural. Whereas things like Wally, where you've got that space scene and, and and sort of deserted world and things, I think visually that would have more of an impact on me purely because it was creating something so intricate that isn't real. I think it's a very, very, very mm-hmm. representation of real countryside. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, uh, I don't know. I, th- I thought it was very, very good visually, but I don't think it's quite at the level of some of the other Pixar films. And well, on the same... enjoy... Sorry. Sorry. Well, I was just going to say, I quite enjoyed how actually, when you've got films like Wally or, or Toy Story 3 or whatever, and they're quite big and ambitious films in that sense, it's quite nice that they've actually decided, well, we're going to just take a, a traditional fairy tale type story and put our own spin on it. They seem quite confident in doing that, and I quite appreciated the fact that they've, they've done this. this yeah. Style. I mean, yeah. what I what I did think was, it it was it was a really good film. It was very enjoyable, um, but it wasn't it wasn't as funny as other Pixar films. It wasn't. Mm. There was funny parts to it, and you know, mm. jokes and slapstick and that that were funny, but it wasn't you know a, a complete out and out comedy. I don't think like some Pixar films are. Did anybody else think that this felt more like a DreamWorks film than a Pixar film? Um, it felt that... more like a Disney film to me. felt more like a Disney princess yeah. film. Um, yeah. I DreamWorks have been doing sort of CGI versions of, of yes, for a while. They have, yeah. And, mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I agree with you in that sense. Yeah, Shrek was very, obviously Shrek was very fairy tale based, but more jokes. Um, but yeah, I think the, the lack of, not the lack of jokes, that makes it, there were some very funny yeah. things, but they weren't very layered. They were quite superficial jokes. They were jokes that I could laugh at there and then. I wouldn't think back and I wouldn't find anything hidden in them on second or third, third viewing. I, mean, I think it really does feel like a Disney princess story. Yeah. The fact is, I think, uh, Merida, or I, when it, they kept sounding like, um, someone from Taggart saying murder though, 
that put me off. Marta. Uh, they kept saying Marta. Well, I mean, uh, if if you're going to do a Scottish animation, you're going to have Billy Connolly doing one of the voices, aren't you? Oh, it's, yeah, obviously. It, Robbie Coltrane yeah. and, and the kids. Yeah. Um, I thought voice talent was very good. Uh, but just about this Disney princess aspect, well, look, I think Merida did. She reminded me a lot of Belle from Beauty and the Beast. She reminded me a lot of Princess Jasmine from Aladdin. It's, 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 the, it's, uh, the, it's the princess that doesn't want to be the archetypal princess of just yeah. sitting on the throne, I, getting married to a handsome prince and living her life, doing nothing, being tended to by seven dwarfs. It's... Exactly. It wasn't, it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't bad. It was just very traditional. It yeah. felt like a variation on a theme that I've seen a lot of times before. And I know that it's, it was originally conceived as quite a feminist story. And, uh, I do know the, uh, the original director and writer, Brenda Chapman, was replaced halfway through. And you can kind of tell because halfway through the film, it loses a lot of its, uh, feminist ideology. And becomes uh, very similar to traditional Disney films. Mm. Uh, I, she makes a compromise. Her mother, yeah, you know, and it's just it. There's a lot of compromise going on where she doesn't stick to her feminist ideals, which are very strong at the beginning. Um, but, That's an yeah. interesting point. I mean, it's um, it's actually their first film they've had a female lead character. Yeah, I think you know it, it is. Again, I'm keep using the word, but it's ambitious again, isn't it? I mean, to, yeah. Yeah, I mean it shouldn't it shouldn't be in 2012 ambitious to have a female lead character in a film, but, <laughs> but it is, and it but feels like they've the, really Disney had female character, female protagonists probably in the majority of their films, so that's quite well. I mean, they, they, they were they were all they were all princesses, weren't they, to an extent? So I mean, yeah. yeah. The difference yeah. here is that is that she's sort of rejecting gender roles, yeah. rejecting that sort of. Mm. Um, tradition, and I think that's where they try and be brave. Mm. It's a very clever way of doing it. Belle's reading books in Beauty and the Beast. Princess Jasmine's going to the the market in Aladdin because she wants to get out of the cafe. Yeah, what all I'm saying is, it's it's not as got it. It's not as brave um, as the film thinks it is in a way. No, I think it's very very tame form of feminism. And like you say, it is a shame that we're going. Oh wow, Pixar with their first female protagonist in 2012. It is a bit of a shame that we think that's uh, a positive thing. We should be going about bloody time, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, in a way, I think we could be in danger of, of overanalyzing what is a children's <laughs> film. Um, so anyone who's listening who's got kids of, you know, under sort of 12, 13, I don't know, I haven't got kids, but kids will like this film. Oh, there was a kid in, our, in my screening who bloody loved it as well, and he actually made me enjoy the film a lot more. Because like <laughs> the opening scene, the you know she's playing hide and seek with with her mum, and he was pissing himself really laughing really badly. He was loving it when she would like look under the table. He thought that was hilarious. And, and the kid and, actually, and the kids in the screen I was in were genuinely scared by the not the not the um not the the demon bear the, the bear that's sort of the the main. You know, enemy. Yeah. It doesn't actually yeah, appear that much. His leg at the beginning. Yeah. yeah. Um, Mordu, I think his name was. Yeah. Um, or what it was called. <laughs> yeah. Just, everything sounded like a, like Taggart saying murder. But yeah. yeah. I mean, That's the kid, the, that, I mean, they didn't, I thought they could have used that character more because that genuinely scared some of the younger kids that were in the same screen it, as what I was it in. It was. 
I know it was interesting that this was a PG as well. I wasn't ex- when I walked in, I wasn't expecting it to be a PG. Yeah. And I can see why it was because there were, as uh, the BBFC likes to call it, there were some mild peril going on it's in this film. Mild peril. Mild mild peril and haggis. Uh, I think oh. that was the on the. <laughs> on, the on a related note with PGs, by the way, did yes. anyone else have the trailer for the new uh, Madagascar film? I missed the trailers, no, unfortunately. I can see that. Oh, well, I, I just thought it was very inappropriate. They had Sexy and I Know It as the as the song on that for a kid's oh. film. And it said Sexy and I Know It. And I was just a bit like, hmm. It's well, I'm in a cinema full of kids. And someone's just said the word sexy. Yeah, like a know, that's, that's, that's DreamWorks. That's big brash DreamWorks story that is. Yeah. Oh, I just, before we finish, oh. first two other things I want to quickly say on this. Firstly, I love Kelly McDonald and always have done. Um, and if Kelly's listening, I'll leave my wife for you. Um, if James's um, wife is listening, then she doesn't listen to this. No. She's all right. At the moment, for God's sake. Um, and the other thing, did you guys get the um, the short film that preceded it, La Luna? Yeah, yes. brilliant. That, wasn't that a lovely bit of animation? Just really yeah. simple, really lovely, simple idea, but um, but also fantastical at the same time. Yeah. Uh, and it really it reminded me. Because it's ages since I've seen a Pixar film in the cinema, and it, that was just like a little nice bonus surprise. So definitely don't worry about getting there for the trailers, but don't miss the short that starts. No. It's a lovely um, piece of cinema. I mean, they, they do those things so well. Um, you know, the one that was uh, before Up, which was the day and the night one, that was fantastic. I think Pixar really sort of excel at distilling something down into like two, three minutes. And that, I think, is it was just so good. I really enjoyed it. And it was one of the few ones where it took you a minute or two to work out what was going on in that one for exactly, a change. Yeah. And then when you did, nice. you thought, oh, that's beautiful, yeah. <laughs> it was really, really good. Um, yeah, that was that was probably one of the better bits of the, the viewing experience for me, actually. I thought that was fantastic. It was I brilliant short cinema. I saw Brave in 2D, and I talked to someone else who saw it in 3D, and said the 3D didn't affect the film, but that La Luna short was actually... They said it was just brilliant in 3D. I think oh, that, was... that was in 3D as well. That's interesting. Ah. I mean, Pixar is just the way they sort of strive for perfection. I mean, they don't always reach it, but it's just the way they put so much effort into making films. And I mean, there's probably many other studios that would be delighted if the worst film in their in their stable was Cars 2. I mean, yeah. I think what you're saying with perfection as well, I think on this one, I think the story was less... Uh, perfected, shall we say, than the visuals. I think they really went to town for the visuals. Mm. And yeah. it wasn't a bad film, but it just didn't grab me and draw me but in. The I, su- I, su- yeah. I suppose, you know. I, I, I think it was one of my favourite Pixar's, though. I think in the same way that Us is, because it's quite minimalist mm. compared to their other films. I think it was actually, I really, 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 really enjoyed it. I mean, go, going it's back to the. Go, I suppose. It's going, this way, definitely. Sorry, Steve. I mean, going back to the humour element of it, I suppose. Just because it's a kids' film, it doesn't have to be constantly laughing all the way through it. You can have a kids' film that isn't a comedy or isn't full of yeah. jokes and laughs. It's, and not, it's not really a kids' film in the same way like Cars is, though. No. Like Finding Nemo, no. you know. I think it's still got quite. I mean, it's a fairy tale story, but it's still. I don't know. I didn't. I yeah. didn't judge it in the same way as I did Cars and Finding Nemo. No. As soon as I changed my expectations. And this was after viewing it. I went in expecting a Pixar film, kind of like Toy Story, Up, Monsters, Inc., Finding Nemo, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And, it's, and I came out and thought, that was good. It wasn't what I was expecting. But the more I've thought about it since I watched it, 
the, and I've compared it to films like Beauty and the Beast, like Aladdin, like Pocahontas, and, the, you know, and I've compared it to that canon, it stands up really, really well. I still don't think it's quite as good as Beauty and the Beast, but it's right up there with some of Disney's best. And I think if you judge it on those lines, it, A, it makes a lot more sense, uh, and B, you actually realise this is a, a really good film. And yeah. if you... um. This, you know, it's set up for sequels. You know, if you if if they want to go down a sequel route, which they've obviously done with Toy Story and Cars, and they're doing with Monsters Inc., it's it certainly got the scope for sequels with the characters yeah. and you know that. I don't think they will, though. I think I think in the end, it almost felt like they just needed to get this one out into the open because of all the internal wrangling that happened in the making of it. They had so many problems. Uh, apparently, Reese Witherspoon was meant to be the uh, the lead rather than Kelly McDonald, and I'm so glad that didn't work yeah, out. Yeah, um, really nice like non-American. I just I thought that was a really important point that I really enjoyed mm-hmm. a lot because it wasn't a, a princess story where the princess was an American in a probable mm-hmm. situation. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, Emma Thompson played her mum. Uh, Billy Connolly. There was some really good British voice talent in it. Yeah. I think that was really important. I mean, like I said, with, with being based in Scotland, you're always going to get Billy Connolly. There, <laughs> oh, there was exactly. no, there was no he, two he, ways about it. Shorthand. People know that's Billy Connolly's voice, so they yeah. know that character's going to be yeah. funny. But, I mean, it, it's it's a nice easy shortcut, but I've, it it works well. I, I've mentioned it before about Pixar. A lot of animated films will throw in some big names to try and make a draw, and it doesn't always work. But Pixar, mm. although although they tend to have big names in all their films, they don't tend to go for just that shoehorn some big names in to play the voices of these characters. They just, and they, they very rarely <coughs> build as well. They might yeah. have big names in it, but it is never that. But never I, suppose as, I suppose that. as they're kids' films, the kids don't might not know or don't yeah. really care if, yeah. if Tom Hanks or Tim Allen are doing the voice of Woody and Buzz or something like that. They're not really yeah. bothered. Oh, and the other thing, just on performances, who, whoever the team of animators were that worked on her hair, they deserve a range of applause, because that was just, yes. I mean, that was like, I heard it mentioned that it was like a character of its own, and I think that's true. There was one scene thing. where she hugged her dad, and the two of their hairs together, and like they managed to get contrast between the two and everything, it was just incredible. It, it You're listening incredible. to the Tony and Guy podcast, listeners. <laughs> 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 two new bits of software purely to make this film. They had to create two new bits of modelling software purely to make it, and one of those was for her hair on its own, which is, which is again, it's just Pixar's attention to detail, uh, and they're striving to make things as perfect. Like, they might not always succeed, but the fact that they went, okay, we want her hair to be as realistic as possible, it's part of her character, right, well, we're going to have to invent some software to do it then. Yeah, that speaks volumes of Pixar. Uh, one final thing, as you're all cinema and film buffs, did we all get the Wicker Man reference? Oh, hang on. Which bit was that? I might have missed that. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the witch, when she goes back to the witch's cabin hut, house thing, yeah. and she's got like the, the answering machine, effectively. Oh, she was off to the <clears throat> island stormway. She was, yeah, she was off to the Wicker Man festival. Yeah. Oh, I missed that. Oh, unbelievable. I love that film. <laughs> One of her wooden carvings was the uh, pizza truck from Toy Story, which appears in every yes, episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure there's loads more little references we could find if yeah. we watched it again. Then, maybe I was maybe I was a bit early to say I wouldn't see things on second view. I'll definitely watch it again, though. Definitely. 
thing is, right, I was I was looking for the Toy Story truck because I knew it had to be in there somewhere. And when I was in when that carving shop was coming in, I was just like scanning everything quickly to find the, <laughs> the truck. Going to just quickly help on your point about um, billion top stars, Steve. Yeah. I think the the difference with Pixar is they when they have a film, people know it's a Pixar film, they're gonna watch it. I think they have that reputation now where people see Disney Pixar above the, the title and they don't need to know mm. who else is in it, whereas studios like DreamWorks perhaps need to build, you know, yeah. the voice down as a draw. Yeah. The name is the draw for Pixar, they don't need yeah. to do anything. They I mean, know that they're established. For Disney, people always will go and see a Disney I mean, animation it's, it's, because they support it with even a bang. It's, it's in, it I suppose it's interesting, but probably a discussion for another day, but I mean, Toy Story probably always would have visually looked impressive when it first came out, but what if the film was rubbish and had flopped? What would that meant for Pixar as a whole? Because that opening right. gambit was such a good film. Mm. And what, what yeah. if, what if it, had, what if it was rubbish? What if the plot was terrible? It didn't work. Kids didn't like Disney it. Wouldn't have worked. Disney wouldn't have worked with them again. And I think without, they needed Disney. And now they're kind of like equal partners, really. Yeah. Uh, but at the time, well, it's Disney, Disney, Disney yeah, exactly. Um, and D- Disney wouldn't have bought Pixar. Pixar probably would have gone under. And, of course, it wasn't working at the beginning. That's that's the thing. You think of how things nearly go wrong. Uh, Woody was an absolute bastard in the original, um, as we've mentioned on yeah. before, in the original script. Um, and, uh, again, will Joss Whedon claim some credit for that? And he is listed as one of the scriptwriters there. Apparently, he came in and fixed it. Uh, you know, He definitely says he came up with the wine, the frog line. I know that is definitely his line. I don't know about the rest of it, but uh, the, the uh, funny character changed to Disney exec when they did the initial yes, it was, yeah. to Disney execs, and the Disney execs were like, "No, you can't have that. Can't have that Disney film. I'm afraid he's he's too horrible. You need to make him, uh, you know, a bit more, a bit softer." I think that really they, you know, really had Billy Crystal as um, Buzz as well, which I love Billy Crystal in Monsters Inc. And Billy Crystal says it's his biggest regret was turning down Toy Story. But I, I don't think it would have worked as well as Tim Allen. No. It's interesting. Did you know, you know Disney actually nearly went under themselves? You know, Pocahontas came out and nearly bankrupted them. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't realise how close it got. Oh, it was pre-war and people probably. weren't just... People just weren't going to see their films. They were plowing money into films and people weren't going they, to see They them. nearly had to turn off Walt's cryogenic chamber. <laughs> <laughs> But you know they recovered. I think Pixar—they are—they have got a talented bunch of people there. I think it, they would have continued even if Disney didn't sort of save them. Just might not be the name that they are these days. Exactly. Yeah. Steve Jobs was involved, so they were always going to get somewhere. Um, yeah. You know, he was heavily involved there. But yeah, I think the fact that Toy Story worked the way it did, and Disney coming on board—that they are—they are the new Disney in a sense. Um, you know, they have that mark of quality about everything that they do and people will always go and see a film regardless of the reviews regardless of who's in it because they're, they're interested in seeing what Pixar do and, and there's not really any other studios that you can say that about I think they're a bigger draw than Disney themselves now I think you're right, I think I think Pixar now is a better reputation than, than Disney's pure animation stuff Yeah Well uh, that's it for this week's Failed Critics Review uh, Thanks to James Owen Jerry, and I suppose myself. Um, thanks to Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com for our music. And thanks to all of you for listening. Hope you'll be back next time.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. (laughs) (laughs) For somebody who's trouncing everyone, Jerry, you can really know the rules. Do Do you know what's even more? bad about that is the fact that I've not even seen Top Gun I just guessed because of what's been in the news yes that segues rather aptly into um, well I suppose us paying tribute to Tony Scott who <laughs> passed away this week and was at the helm of the fantastic Top Gun among other films yes um, yeah I, I think I my views on Top Gun are already quite well known, so I'm not going to go into those. But did you cry honest, at Top Gun? Because you do seem to cry at a lot of films. No, no, <laughs> I, I didn't cry at Top Gun, believe it or not. Um, I have nearly shed a tear though at uh, True Romance. Um, uh, yeah, basically Tony Scott. He, he, I, I do love a few. Um, there's a good few of his films that I really. Love. I think Enemy of the State is a fantastic film. I no, actually that is the only one of his films that I've seen. Oh, it's, it's a great film. Um, but yeah, if you've not seen True Romance, Quentin Tarantino says it's his best script. Uh, but it's one that Tony Scott directed. Uh, I remember in 2000, I think it was, I paid for a screening, um, at the cinema for the second anniversary of meeting the woman who's now my wife. Um, and that film itself, it taught me so much about love and it taught me about being awesomely cool and violent as well. Uh, it's a brilliant film. And I just, want, um, what was that, sorry? Was that how your date went? It was like love and then being awesomely violent and cool. Yes, that, that, that's, I think that's how every great relationship could be. You need you need the, the light with the dark there. Um, and I, I did see on Twitter this week, um, Christian Slater, who was the star of True Romance, um, I, I think he summed it up best when he said, I've always loved you, Tony, always have, always will. Um, and yeah, we'll, we'll miss you, Tony Scott. Yeah, I mean, lots of good kind of action thrillers under his name. Yeah, um, he, he really was unashamedly commercial, but always still did something different and something quite exciting. It might not always have worked. Um, it might not have always been the best film. Um, but what I did love is the fact that he he was never pretentious. He never tried to... Um, it, he, he wasn't afraid of just saying, look, here's a great fun action film. I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, and and I think we'll we'll miss that. Yeah, I mean, the last film that he made was, was Unstoppable, which was um, partly based on a true story about a um, runaway train, and yes. that was a, that was a you know a, a good action film in itself. I mean, I've not been such engrossed in in something on the screen about trains since Thomas the Tank Engine. <laughs> <laughs> and, and if that's the best review we can come up with, I'm sure I'd be happy. <laughs> <laughs> But no, I mean, yeah, and apparently they were he, he and him and Tom Cruise were uh, were um looking into making a sequel to Top Gun. Yeah, yes. that's right. I heard about that. I'm not sure though about 
whether that would have ever happened or not. Isn't Tom Cruise a bit egocentric now to do something like that? But it's a shame that, um, you know, we didn't get to see another film from Tony Scott. Yeah, um, apparently Tom Cruise was at, uh, actually the weekend it happened, he was at a military base apparently doing research. So um, I, I think he was genuinely into that idea. Um, but yeah, yeah, um, it, it did, and also he, I'm really, really looking forward to seeing uh, next week when I go to Bowie Fest, uh, covering Bowie Fest for Bell Critics. Uh, Tony, one of Tony Scott's first films, The Hunger, is playing there, starring David Bowie, Susan Sarandon, Catherine Deneuve as some kind of lesbian vampire. So that sounds very entertaining as well. So thanks for all the entertainment, Tony. Yes. Um, later on, we'll be reviewing the new Pixar film, Brave. But before that, we'll be reviewing what else we've been watching this week. James, would you like to start us off? Yes. Um, well, this week, uh, I managed to see two films on the big screen. So the first one I'm going to talk about is... Um, well, actually, no, I'll just quickly mention, I did see Cape Fear, the 1962 Robert Mitchum uh, and Gregory Peck film last night. I won't go into a lot of detail about that, but just to say it was fantastic. Um, we spoke about Robert Mitchum, I think it was Owen talking about Robert Mitchum in Night of the Hunter a few mm-hmm. podcasts back. Um, I've still not seen Night of the Hunter again. I saw it years ago, uh, and I can't really remember. But Robert Mitchum as the villain in Cape Fear is also, he's incredible in this. Absolutely magnetic uh it's such a brilliant film i I would recommend anyone going out and see it mainly because it also means that brilliant simpsons episode uh with um oh bart sideshow bob uh trying to kill bart with die bart die for bart but um (laughs) that brilliant with the rakes and the music and everything um you'll get you'll get that even more if you've seen the original film. It's another one of those great things where you go, Oh, that episode of The Simpsons makes even more sense now. Um Is it so, is yeah. it better than the, the remake? Can I just ask a quick question? I I've not seen the remake, but I've heard a lot of I, I can't imagine the put it this way, I don't want to watch the remake. I watched this film and it was near perfect. And I cannot imagine even though it's Scorsese and De Niro, I can't imagine the remake getting near it without being a little bit redundant. So um, that's, that's a pretty good good review, saying I, I don't want to see the remake. That's about uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, But yeah, the main film I want to talk about is I uh, saw The Expendables 2, um, directed by Simon West, who directed Con Air, but most importantly, of all, starring Sly, The Stafe, Dolph Lundgren, Arnie, Bruce Willis, Jean-Claude Van Damme, and some other guys who, <laughs> because I don't know, much about ultimate fighting and stuff like that. I'm not really <laughs> sure who they are. Uh, but I have seen them in the original film. So, um, yeah, basically, Sly and the other action OAPs back for another round of explosions and terrible dialogue. Now, I got excited about the first one and then it disappointed me. Uh, I think I said this to Jerry possibly off air last week when we were talking about the Expendables. But I enjoyed this one a lot more. Um, it steals from great action films of the 80s. It steals from terrible action films of the 80s. Um, Sly and uh, Statham's bromance, basically, is one of the most endearing double acts I've seen in recent Hollywood memory. Uh, sadly, the rest of the non... The rest of the bits where they're not shoot, shoot, stab, stab, explode, punch, kick, um, is a bit ropey, to be honest. Uh, <laughs> some of the dialogue is absolutely atrocious. Uh, and and at times it's almost like you think, 
are they not taking themselves seriously? Is this like, is this a parody of action films? Or is this genuinely what Sly thinks is great dialogue? Um, and yeah, so, yeah, the dialogue, not great, but there is one uh, brilliant bit where um, it's revealed that Dolph Lundgren's character gave up a career in chemical engineering to become a bouncer. Which is a lot. Dolph Lundgren is actually the comic relief in these films, and he is really funny. But I only then found out that in real life, Dolph Lundgren really did abandon a career as a scientist to become the bodyguard for his girlfriend at the time, lunatic disco mistress Grace Jones, which is a nice little bit of trivia. <laughs> and then he became an action star. Um, the plot in itself is pretty non-existent. Um, it's it could well have been ripped from one of the films that any of these guys starred in, in the 80s, quite possibly. Uh, brutal revenge stories save the world, putting the Expendables against uh, a reborn, but not literally, Jean-Claude Van Damme, who is great in this. Jean-Claude Van Damme, probably one of the best bits of this film. He he really excels as the pantomime villain. Um, and it, in the film, he's actually called Villain. And when you look it up on IMDb, it's Villain. <laughs> As his name, <laughs> this, is, this is about how much um, inspiration Sylvester Sloan has but, got. But when you read uh, things like that, surely they're, they're taking the mick out yeah, of it are, themselves. Um, all of the Expendables have got really stupid. Now, I, one of the worst, um, Jason Statham's called Lee Christmas, for God's sake. <laughs> but, I would love it if he was related to Lloyd Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I'm starting that rumour now. Officially, yeah, that's a great room he's Lloyd Christmas's younger brother, and Dumb and Dumber and The Expendables are in the same film universe. Imagine that crossover! <laughs> oh, I can't wait for that. <laughs> they're, well, they're, uh, apparently, they're working on a Dumb and Dumber two at the moment, so that that could. That I, just, I just despair about Hollywood at times. <laughs> didn't, didn't they have Dumb and Dumber or whatever? It yeah. Was called? yeah, they did. They did have that. This apparently is Jim Carrey and Jeff. Uh, Bridges, who is oh, also right. in the newsroom at the moment. Um, uh, yeah, I'll, yeah, newsroom as well. Um, Terry Crews, who I think is a, is a former American footballer. Yeah. Or something like that. Yeah. Um, he's in the Expendables and he's also brilliant in newsroom at the moment. That's how I knew him, uh, this time around. But yeah, there's some brilliant kills. Uh, there's some really, really entertaining kills, actually. I'm not going to spoil them for anyone. There's a great cameo. Although I'm not going to spoil it, but if you've seen the trailer, you'll probably know who it is. Um, is it? Is it? They do play. Is what? it? Is it? Um, and also a with a featuring or an and. Um, oh, I can't <laughs> remember. It's one of those. Yeah, it's. Um, but weirdly, before he appears, they play um, the man with no name music from the Fistful of Dollars trilogy, and it's like, what? They got Clint? Oh no, they haven't got Clint. Oh, <laughs> they've got someone who is not Clint, but it's still quite funny action cameo type thing there um the only thing you could fault it for i think is a lack of ambition um it doesn't want to be it clearly doesn't want to be any better than it is um it's very content to be a seven out of ten action film poking fun at itself which is fine um but it did make me think that there is a, a film out there to be made which deconstructs the action genre uh, in the way that joss Whedon and wes craven have done with horror and I think it would be really interesting to find someone that actually go, now let's properly deconstruct the 80s action genre. That would be great fun. Like I say, it's a pure action film. 
Uh, and it, it actually succeeds where films like The Bourne Legacy failed by the fact that it doesn't take itself too seriously and doesn't want to be anything more than a fun two-hour action film. As I finished with my fate, I did have to write down a quote. At one point, Jean-Claude Van Damme uh, says to someone about a tattoo on his neck, this is the symbol of the goat, the pet of Satan. Uh, and that's that's just an example of the brilliant dialogue you get. <laughs> Looking forward to Expendables at three, then. Yeah, I think I also uh, I think Owen saw it. Did did you kind of agree with me, Owen? Yeah, I think it's seven out of ten action film is the best way to describe it. It's um it's got a lot of in jokes between all the characters. So I think as well, I took my wife to see it because sometimes she kind of likes these trashy action films as well, which is great. But uh, she hasn't seen a lot of the same films that I have that star these guys in. So she kind of found it a little bit boring. Where I was just kind of like, oh yes, I absolutely get that. That's brilliant. Some of the parts yeah. in the film. Um, but the, the thing that it actually depressed me reading up about it afterwards, Sylvester Stallone is nearly 70 years old. He's, <laughs> you know, okay. mid 60s, and I'm thinking, oh my, he's past his mid 60s, and I'm just, yeah. that's so depressing. And when Arnie delivers, I'll be back. You just, you, I actually cringed at that point because yeah. there was no menace to it whatsoever. And then after that, I saw. Both Arnie and Sly have got big, marquee action films coming out after this. Like, um, a Bullet in the Head and um, Last Stand or something like that. And yet they both look like... Although, to be fair, Sly does look in a lot better shape than Arnie does. Arnie looks like a... To be fair, you don't realise Sly is nearly 70. Yeah, Arnie's let himself go. He's been too busy being governator for a while. Exactly. You know, exactly. He's exactly. training all the way through. Arnie's a big man and he's out of shape, I can tell you. Actually, the one thing actually that I did notice about Sylvester Stallone as well whilst watching it, he is harder to understand than Bane in Dark Knight Rises. I found that, you know, it's sometimes, I'm not having the go at him for being, you know, kind of physically disabled, but he was really struggling to enunciate all of his words, and I found it a bit difficult. I've found he's a bit like that since I first watched Rocky, though. I mean, he's a bit... Oh, yeah, but this is pretty much in that style. He, no. <laughs> he 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 doesn't enunciate his words particularly well. No, but he was really sort of slurring through most of this. I just thought that was something that stood out for me. Well, Owen, as you're already talking, what have you been watching this week? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, fine. Um, I watched quite a few films from the um, Sight and Sound list, so I saw three of those films. Passion of Joan of Arc, fantastic. But the film that I want to talk about most uh, is a Tim Burton film. One that I it kind of arrives through the post from um, Love Film, and I just thought, well, I'll just stick it on. I've got a spare couple hours now, so I'll watch that. Uh, it was Ed Wood, and it's the story of, uh, well, it's a kind of biopic of, uh, or biopic. How do you pronounce that word, by the way? Anyone... I say biopic. Okay. Well, I'm going to say that I'm well. definitive. <laughs> I'm going to continue to say biopic then. It was a biopic of Edward, uh, the famous, uh, famously bad B-movie filmmaker. Uh, but actually, it's kind of a, a, a brilliant Tim Burton film, and I never thought I'd say that. Um, Batman Returns, as we've discussed before, I quite like. I think that's not mm. his best Batman film. But actually, this just it was just fantastic. I really, really enjoyed it. And I went into the film without actually realising what it was about. I just kind of got the DVD out of the case, took it in the player and watched it. 
And it only clicked a little bit later on that Edward D. Wood Jr. of Plan 9 for Mayor of Space fame. So that was a bit embarrassing. But I gradually pieced it together as different characters appeared on the screen, you know, Vampira and Paul Johnson and that kind of thing. And of course, Bella Lugosi, who is played by Martin Lando, who is utterly, utterly fantastic in this film. I mean, he's the real standout star. Johnny Depp is great as Edward. He's full of this optimism and wonderment and kind of gets across this genuine enthusiasm for the film industry that I'm sure Edward has. But yeah, Martin Lando is Bella Lugosi, just the absolute star here. Such a convincing performance, a kind of one that pays homage to the ghosty rather than turning him into a caricature. I mean, lots of this film is quite silly and over the top. Um, but it doesn't really poke fun at anybody in a mean way. It kind of has a laugh with it, you know. Um, but with the ghosty, it, it seems quite heartfelt um, tribute to him. Um, but, you know, it, it's, it's great to see as well. And I think it comes across that Burton is a fan of both of them. Um, and it, as I say, I went into it without knowing what to expect. But I, what I got was a film that was quite fun. Um, it was, I, I love some of the aspects of it. For example, it's shot all in black and white, which I think gave it this great beefy tone of its own. I liked how the whole thing came together towards the end and it just sort of clicked into place halfway. Kind of, that, you've got it now, you know what's happening. And, yeah. But, you know, I was a bit shocked how much I enjoyed it, because it as I say. I'm not a fan of Tim Burton. Uh, I won't keep rating him for the rest of every podcast, but I was set up to kind of be disappointed by it, and I think maybe because I went in with low expectations, I actually really enjoyed it. So it's not covered in all that horrible gothic theme that he puts to all of his films, in all of his films, and there's none of this awful, you know, musical numbers that crop up and do absolutely nothing for the story. It was a genuinely heartfelt film with great performances um, and if you've seen Plan 9 from Outer Space or any of Edwards of the film, it, I think it enhances the film because it is just a, a great tribute to that. It's great to see how all those people came together to make this film. So I really enjoyed it. And it doesn't have Helena Bonham Carter in. She's not in it yet, I don't think she's in it yet, is he? But anyway, no, she's not oh, in it. Okay. So. It's one of his films that have her in it, so it counts, it's good. <laughs> Yeah, it's a good way to judge a Tim Burton film. Well, the film that I watched this week was Twelve Monkeys, the 1995 film starring Bruce Willis and Brad Pitt. Um, Bruce Willis plays a criminal who's in prison in a post-apocalyptic future. Uh, Earth was ravaged by a virus and he gets sent back in time to try and stop the virus happening where he meets Brad, Brad Pitt's character who's a mental patient um, <laughs> who also likes to protest against animal rights and Brad Pitt has to try and sort out the future um, but is a troubled character himself. It is not as confusing as Primer I was going to say, Steve, you keep punishing yourself with these <laughs> these multiple time universe plots. Yes, it's definitely less confusing and private. It's actually a really good film. It's um, you know, it, it, it plays on the time travel aspect quite well. Um, Bruce Willis and Brad Pitt are both excellent in it. Um, there's a couple of twists, but the story reaches a, a sensible and and good conclusion as well. I don't want to root. I don't. 
There's not much you can say about it in case people haven't seen it, but it's so old that I guess a lot of people probably have. I mean, have any of you seen it? Yeah, I really like it. Yeah. I was. I have to admit, I haven't seen it, but I, I've always been interested by it. But intrigued by it, but I, no, I haven't seen it. I yet. think I think I mentioned it on my um, uh, directors I've fallen out of love with um, because I think this is the last good Terry Gilliam film I've seen. Mm. This is sort of the way that the time travel aspect doesn't seem to work quite well. So there's times where Bruce Willis's character pops up in, you know, before the 1996 where he needs to be, and he ends up sort of in a in a photo from World War One, and he gets spotted that way, and it's quite cleverly done with that. Yeah, and um, Bruce Willis's character is actually quite complex because he's a criminal. If he gets if he succeeds in his mission going back into the past and stopping this virus, he gets a pardon, but then surely if he stops the virus, then the future won't happen, so he probably won't be a criminal and the pardon will be irrelevant. Um, but he also suffers from, with visions of a shooting at an airport, and it all ties in really well at the end. Um, but yes, if you like films that involve time travel that aren't as confusing as Primer, then, then watch 12 Monkeys. Is it like, um, what's that Ashton Kutcher butterfly effect? Does it kind of follow the same principles as that? I've yeah. not seen Butterfly Effect, so you'll have to ask okay. James if he's seen it, because he's seen Twelve Monkeys. Uh, no, I've not seen Butterfly Effect. Um, I, there, okay. there isn't, it hasn't got, uh, from what I know of Butterfly Effect, I don't think it is the same. I don't think there's lots of going back and changing things, and not so much of but, that anyway. It's, it's quite a confusing film, but I do remember I watched it before um, I had the internet. So... I, I couldn't go online and find out what happened like right. I did with Primer, and I still felt I understood it. I've not found, I've not found a chart for 12 months yes. to explain what's going on. <laughs> um, finally then, Jerry, what have you been watching this week? Um, this week, the film I want to talk about this week is, I think it's one that has been covered on here already, actually, uh, Dreams of a Life, which is a documentary from last year, if I remember rightly. Um, and I think, James, have you talked about it on here before? I can't remember if I've talked about it. I've definitely seen it this year. I saw it in February, I think, this year. Um, so I saw it before we started doing the podcast. And I might have mentioned it as one of my also rants on favourite documentaries. Yeah, maybe. Um, basically, for those of you that haven't heard of this, it made quite a lot of the critics list last year, actually. A lot of the, like, the top tens of the year and things like that. Um, it's telling... I can't really describe it. It's a bit of a crazy story. It was a woman. This is a real true story. Um, and she was in a flat in London for three years, dead, with the TV on. Uh, no one realised at all. No one came looking for her. No one no one missed her, really. Um, it was a busy street in the middle of London. So, you know, it was all the life. I think she lived above a shopping centre. So, you know, everything's passing by. And she was just up there, slowly rotting in this, in this room. Um and she was surrounded by Christmas presents. So she'd been wrapping Christmas presents when she died. Um, they only found her because the bailiffs broke in because she was in some serious uh, rent arrears. Uh, and that's how he found her. Like, it's basically the, the documentary makers saw this in the paper um, and were really fascinated by how this could happen and how you know someone could sort of withdraw so completely from society that no one would find them for over three years. Uh, and what it consists of is, is sort of piecing together what her life was 
uh, trying to find out who she was because obviously, you know, when someone like that dies in such a situation, it's pretty hard to work out why. Um, and it's talking with people who knew her through her various stages of her life, you know, friends, uh, ex-boyfriends, things like that, and they sort of piece together the, the whole story of her life. And uh, it's very interesting. It's terribly sad. Um, you know, obviously, you know the ending, so there's no real twists in the uh, in the end of the tale. But the, the narrative of actually of her life and sort of more and more being revealed about how she went through life and what kind of person she was and, and different experiences she had is still very interesting. It makes a kind of narrative of itself. Uh, it's very well made, um, quite you know, quite a sympathetic thing, but also it, it's still very insightful about her and, and, and sort of isn't afraid to maybe show negative sides of a character and things like that. And the, the interviews with the people are very telling. Um, and, you know, it's it's just very sad that, that all these people could know her and yet she could withdraw so completely that no one, not even she has three sisters and, and no one got tried to contact her. I mean, it's, it's pretty incredible. Um, and it sort of manages to hold, even though that initial story is, is quite incredible and very uh, affecting, it still manages to hold you through the whole film, which I think is the real skill and success of the, the, the documentary makers in this case. It's very interesting. Um, it's not the best documentary I've ever seen, but it was certainly very, very good. Uh, well worth a watch, particularly if you, if you know, if you're British and you sort of live in a city, it, it's quite telling, a bit of an indictment of sort of modern city living and how we, we can withdraw from it completely. Uh, but I'd like to think someone would find me before three years. I mean, fucking hell. Yeah. Sorry, is this set in Britain then? It's, 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 it's in London, I believe, yeah. Yeah, well, I, I just, I don't know why, I just assumed it was American. No, that's really documentary as well. So, like, yeah. it's kind of piecing her life back together. And she was in central one of the shopping centres in some flat, I think. And I can't yeah. remember exactly where, but she lived all over London as well. So, like, as they're sort of going through her life, she moved around quite a lot. Um, so, it's very much. I think if you if you lived in London or had lived in London or, or were more familiar with it than I am, I think it would probably be even more affecting because it would seem very local and very real. But even you know, I mean, I'm not particularly familiar with London myself, but it really is very, very much, very modern, very British, and it's, it's sort of her life through the 80s and 90s, and, and right to, I think it was 2003 she died, um, or it might have been 2006, I can't remember whether it was 2003 she died, and they found her in 2006, but it, it's weird, it's very weird, I mean, James will testify to how... I mean, where, yeah. where, just in case any listeners want to watch it, where did you find that... Um, you... It is now out, yeah, generally available on, on home entertainment formats, shall we I say. I think it's on, it's on one of the, it's on Netflix, it might be Netflix US, I'm not sure. It's definitely available for streaming, and I know you can get it in uh, places like iTunes and the Google Play Store, so you can rent it digitally. I've not seen a hard copy of it yet. Uh, the director is someone called Carol Morley, very interesting uh, documentary maker. Um, but yeah, it's brilliant the way... It takes one person's story and basically says, this is Britain today. It, it takes a very, very small insular story, but it tells a story of, uh, like you say, living in a modern city in Britain these days. Um, and yeah, I, came, I saw it in the cinema and I came out. I couldn't really talk to anyone for about an hour afterwards. It really, really profoundly affected me. Uh, we went to see it for someone's birthday treat. And I was, bizarre choice of film for that. Um, but yeah, it was, yeah, I can't recommend it highly enough. It's one of my favourite documentaries from the last two years, definitely. Has has it made a northerner like yourself, Jerry, even more scared of London? <laughs> scared, but I just don't think it's worth twice the price of anywhere else, that's all. 
I would just also like to point out from the perspective of someone who doesn't cry or get affected by films, it's not going to make like silent for an hour. It's just you know, James cries at the Dark Knight and stuff. So <laughs> James, James also drinks a lot by the sounds of it. So I, mean, I don't know the two are related. He's very in touch with his emotions. Yes. Um, yes. Well, should we move on to Brave? Uh, yeah. Um, oh, should we just say what we're doing next week and stuff as well? Nice little break there, isn't it? Sorry, Steve, doing your job again for you. We, we all keep stepping in. <laughs> I'll be able to have a week off soon at this rate. Yeah, I know. Good <laughs> um, yeah, just say next week's review, we're, we're reviewing Total Recall, the remake of the classic Paul Verhoeven Arnie um, vehicle starring Colin Farrell and Kate Beckinsale and directed by Kate Beckinsale's husband, Len Wiseman, is it? from the Underworld series. Uh, so that's our main review next week. The triple bill coming up later this week is films that we'd like to see based on true stories. And also next week, I will be uh, reporting live, kind of in a way. Uh, we're doing a special podcast for Bowie Fest, the first ever festival devoted to the film work of David Bowie. I'm going to be covering the festival for failed critics. I'll be down there. I'll be tweeting from that. I'll be blogging from that. And we'll be putting together a special Bowie-centric podcast to follow in uh, the week after. So that's what's coming up on Failed Critics. And, of course, you can find us at failedcritics.com or facebook.com slash failedcritic. Lovely. Well, Brave, then, the latest uh, effort from Pixar, the studio that have brought you lots of Toy Story and Monsters, Inc. and Finding Nemo, etc., tells the story. Well... Based in what I believe to be modern-day Scotland. <laughs> oh, well, I'll have to check no. our podcast out. Check we've not got Scottish listeners. No. Our first readers, I would like to just point out the rest of us aren't as weirdly stunted and insular as Steve is. <laughs> they certainly look like modern-day Scotland to me. Um, <laughs> Marie is, is a princess who is at the age where the king and the queen want to marry her off to the son of someone from another clan um, because that's a tradition, but she doesn't want to do that. She likes to fire bow and arrows and, and kill things and, and is a bit more tomboyish, so she falls out of her mother big time and the story goes from there, really, without giving too much away. Uh, first thing I'll say is, as all Pixar films do, it looks absolutely fantastic. Yeah, like, it's one of their best-looking films. This, um, it gives you colours with it. Yeah. Just I think it is their best-looking film, full stop. Yeah, and I only saw it in 2D. Um, yeah, I, I didn't want to sell out the extra fantastic. for 3D. I mean, visually, I think it's the most ambitious settings they've given a Pixar film in terms of... This, yeah, definitely. You know, in terms of, you know, Scottish valleys and rivers and lakes and hills and forests and everything. I think um, Wally was probably... I don't know, this was definitely quite ambitious, but Wally was also quite ambitious with its um, designs of place. I mean, for, for example, the, the making of the um, all the people on the, the spaceship fingers being quite overweight and flat mm. and stuff was quite brave, I think. But yeah, See actually, what you've done there? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the, I, yeah no, I, think, I think you're right there. They're both fantastic technical achievements. I just think brave mm. look beautiful uh but it just was breathtaking at times see i i don't think it, it really i don't it was very good don't get me wrong i don't want to slight it or anything but i think 
of the Pixar films I've seen, it was it was very good. But I think you know some of the scenes in other films are, are, are better than it. Actually, I was I was surprised because I, I think as much as anything, it's depicting quite a natural sort of you know it is that that Scottish. Obviously, there's there's great beauty in, in the Scottish countryside, but it's quite natural. Whereas things like Wally, where you've got that space scene and and, and sort of deserted world and things, I think visually that would have more of an impact on me purely because it was creating something so intricate that isn't real. I think it's a very, very, very mm-hmm. representation of real countryside, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I thought it was very, very good visually, but I don't think it's quite at the levels of the other Pixar films. And well, quite... say... Sorry. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, I quite enjoyed how, actually, when you've got films like Wally or or Toy Story 3 or whatever, and they're quite big and ambitious films in that sense. It's quite nice that they've actually decided, well, we're going to just take a, a traditional fairy tale type story and put our own spin on it. They seem quite confident in doing that, and I quite appreciated the fact that they've, they've done this. this yeah, style. I mean, yeah. What, I, what I did think was, it, it was it was a really good film, it was very enjoyable, um, but it wasn't it wasn't as funny as other Pixar films, it wasn't. Mm. There was funny parts to it, and you know, mm. jokes and slapstick and that that were funny, but it wasn't, you know, a, a complete out and out comedy. I don't think, like some Pixar films are. Did it anybody was... else think that this felt more like a DreamWorks film than a Pixar film? Uh, it felt that... more like a Disney film to me. It felt more like a Disney princess yeah. film. Um, yeah, and DreamWorks have been doing sort of CGI versions of, of yes Disney for a while. They have, yeah. And... Mm. Yeah, no, I agree with you in that sense. Yeah, Shrek was very, obviously Shrek was very fairy tale based, but more jokes. Um, but yeah, I think the, the lack of, not the lack of jokes, that makes it, there were some very funny yeah. bits, but they weren't very layered. They were quite superficial jokes. They were jokes that I could laugh at there and then. I wouldn't think back and I wouldn't find anything hidden in them on second or third, third viewings. But I, mean, I think it really does feel like a Disney princess story. Yeah, the fact is, I think, uh, Merida, or I, when it, they kept sounding like um, someone from Taggart saying murder, though, that put me off. <laughs> murder. Uh, they kept saying murder. Well, I mean, uh, if if you're going to do a Scottish animation, you're going to have Billy Connolly doing one of the voices, aren't you? Oh it's, yeah, obviously it, Robbie Coltrane yeah. and, and the kids. Yeah. Um, I thought voice talent was very good, uh, but just about this Disney princess aspect. Well, look, I think Merida did. She reminded me a lot of Belle from Beauty and the Beast. She reminded me a lot of Princess Jasmine from Aladdin. It's, 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 the, it's, uh, the, it's the princess that doesn't want to be the archetypal princess of just yeah. sitting on the throne, getting married to a handsome prince and living her life, doing nothing, being tended to by seven dwarfs. It's... Exactly. It wasn't, it wasn't, it, it, it wasn't bad. It was just very traditional. It yeah. felt like a variation on a theme that I've seen a lot of times before. And I know that it's it was originally conceived as quite a feminist story. And uh, I do know the uh, the original director and writer, Brenda Chapman, was replaced halfway through. And you can kind of tell because halfway through the film, it loses a lot of its uh, feminist ideology and becomes uh, very similar to traditional Disney films, mm. uh, i.e. she makes a compromise, her mother, you know, and it's just, it. there's a lot of compromise going on, where she doesn't stick to her feminist ideals, which are very strong at the beginning. Um, but, That's an you know, interesting point. I mean, it's um, it's actually their first film they've had a female lead character. Yeah. I think, you know, it, it is, again, I'm keep using the word, but it's ambitious again, isn't it? I mean, to, yeah. 
Yeah, I mean, it shouldn't, it shouldn't be in 2012 ambitious to have a female lead character in a film, but, <laughs> but it is, and uh, it but, feels like they've really... Disney had female character, female protagonist, probably in the majority of their films. So that's quite. Well, I mean, they, they, they were all they were all princesses, weren't they, to an extent? So I mean, yeah. Yeah. the difference yeah. here is that is that she's sort of rejecting gender roles, yeah. rejecting that sort of mm. um, tradition, and I think that's where they try and be brave. That's yeah, very cle- it's a very clever way of doing it. Belle's reading books in Beauty and the Beast. Princess Jasmine's going to the, the market in Aladdin because she wants to get out of the car. Yeah, what all I'm saying is, it's it's not as God, it keeps you, it's not as brave um, as the film thinks it is in a way. No, uh, I, there, I think it's a very tame form of feminism. I mean, and like you say, it is a bit of a shame that we're going. Oh wow, Pixar with their first female protagonist in 2012. It is a bit of a shame that we think that's uh, a positive thing, and we should be going. I've had bloody time, to be honest. <laughs> I mean, in a way, I think we could be in danger of, of overanalyzing what is a children's <laughs> film. Um, so anyone who's listening who's got kids of, you know, under sort of 12, 13, I don't know, I haven't got kids, but kids will like this film. Oh, there was a kid in, our, in my screening who bloody loved it as well, and he actually made me enjoy the film a lot more because, like, <laughs> the opening scene, the you know, she's playing hide and seek with with her mum, and he was pissing himself, really laughing, really badly. He was loving it. When she would like look under the table, he thought that was hilarious. And, and the kid and, and the kids in the screen I was in were genuinely scared by the not the not the um not the the demon bear, the, the bear that's sort of the the main. You know, enemy. Yeah. It doesn't actually appear that much. His leg at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. Um, Mordu, I think his name was, yeah. um, or what it was called. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Just, everything sounded like a like Taggart saying murder. But yeah, yeah. I mean That's the kid. The, that, I mean they didn't. I thought they could have used that character more because that genuinely scared some of the younger kids that were in the same screen as what I was it in. Was. I know it was interesting. That this was a PG as well. I wasn't ex- when I walked in, I wasn't expecting it to be a PG, yeah. and I can see why it was because there were, as uh, the BBFC likes to call it, there were some mild peril going on in this film. Mild peril, mild peril, and haggis. I think that was on the on a related note with PGs. By the way, did anyone have the trailer for the new Madagascar film? I missed the trailers, unfortunately. I can see that. Oh well, I, I just thought it was very inappropriate. They had "Sexy and I Know It" as the as the song on that for a kids' film, oh. and it said "Sexy and I Know It," and I was just a bit like, "Hmm, well, I'm in a cinema full of kids, and someone's just said the word sexy in like a you know, that's, that's DreamWorks. That's big brass DreamWorks toy. That is. Yeah. Oh, I just before we finish, oh. first two other things I want to quickly say on this. Firstly, I love Kelly McDonald and always have done. Um, and if Kelly's listening, I'll leave my wife for you. Um, if James's um, wife is listening, then she doesn't listen to this. No. She's right. on... He's in the car. <laughs> come out yeah. <laughs> at the moment, for God's sake. Um, and the other thing, did you guys get the um, the short film that preceded it, La Luna? Yeah, yes. brilliant. That, well, wasn't that a lovely bit of animation? Just really yeah. simple, really lovely, simple idea, but um, but also fantastical at the same time. Yeah, uh, and it really it reminded me. Because it's ages since I've seen a Pixar film in the cinema, and it, that was just like a little nice bonus surprise. So definitely, don't worry about getting there for the trailers, but don't miss the short that starts. No, it's a lovely um, piece of cinema. I mean, they, they do those things so well. 
um, you know, the one that was uh, before Up, which was the day and the night one, that was fantastic. I think Pixar really sort of excel at distilling something down into like two, three minutes. And that, I think, is it was just so good. I really enjoyed it. And it was one of the few ones where it took you a minute or two to work out what was going on in that one for a change. Yeah. And then when you did, nice. you like, oh, that beautiful, yeah. <laughs> it was really, really good. Um, yeah, that was that was probably one of the better bits of the, the viewing experience for me, actually. I thought that was fantastic. It was I thought, short cinema. It's, it's just... I saw Brave in 2D, and I talked to someone else who saw it in 3D, and said the 3D didn't affect the film, but that La Luna short was actually... They said it was just brilliant in 3D. Oh, was... That was in 3D as well. That's interesting. Ah. Yeah. I mean, Pixar is just the way they sort of strive for perfection. I mean, they don't always reach it, but it's just the way they put so much effort into making films. And I mean, there's probably many other studios that would be delighted if the worst film in their in their stable was Cars 2. I mean, yeah. I think what you're saying with perfection as well, I think on this one, I think the story was less... Uh, perfected, shall we say, than the visuals. They really went to town for the visuals. Mm. And yeah. it wasn't a bad film, but it just didn't grab me and draw me but in. The I, su- I, su- I suppose... I, mean, it w- I think it was one of my favourite Pixar's, though. I think in the same way that Us is, because it's quite minimalist compared to their other films. I think it was actually... I really, 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 really enjoyed it. I mean, go, going back to the... Go, I suppose... Going, this way, Sorry, Steve. I mean, going back to the humour element of it, I suppose just because it's a kid's film, it doesn't have to be constantly laughing all the way through it. You can have a kid's film that isn't a comedy or isn't full of yeah. jokes and laughs. It's, and not, it's not really a kid's film in the same way like Cars is, though. No. Like Nebo, no. You know, I think it's still got quite... I mean, it's a fairy tale story, but it's still... I don't know. I didn't, I yeah. didn't judge it in the same way as I did Cars and Finding Nemo. No. As soon as I changed my expectations, and this was after viewing it, I went in expecting a Pixar film kind of like Toy Story, Up, Monsters, Inc., Finding Nemo, that kind of thing. And as, and I came out and thought, that was good. It wasn't what I was expecting. But the more I've thought about it since I watched it, the and I've compared it to films like Beauty and the Beast, like Aladdin, like Pocahontas, and, the, you know, and I've compared it to that canon, it stands up really, really well. I still don't think it's quite as good as Beauty and the Beast, but it's right up there with some of Disney's best. And I think if you judge it on those lines... If A, it makes a lot more sense, uh, and B, you actually realise this is a, a really good film. And yeah. if you um, this you know it's set up for sequels. You know if you if if they want to go down a sequel route, which they've obviously done with Toy Story and Cars, and they're doing with Monsters Inc. It, it's certainly got the scope for sequels with the characters yeah. and you know that. I don't think they will, though. I think I think in the end, it almost felt like they just needed to get this one out into the open because of all the internal wrangling that happened in the making of it. They had so many problems. Uh, apparently, Reese Witherspoon was meant to be the uh, the lead rather than Kelly MacDonald, and I'm so glad that didn't work yeah. out. Yes, um, and really nice like I say, non-American. I just I thought that was a really important point that I really enjoyed mm-hmm. a lot because it wasn't a, a princess story where the princess was an American in an improbable mm-hmm. situation. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, Emma Thompson played her mum, uh, Billy Conley. There was some really good British voice talent in it. Yeah. I think that was really important. I mean, like I said, with, with being based in Scotland, you're always going to get Billy Conley. There, <laughs> oh, there was exactly. no, there was no two did, ways about it. 
shorthand. People know that's Billy Connolly's voice, so they yeah. know that character's going to be yeah. funny. But, I mean, it, it's, it's a nice, easy shortcut, but I've, it, it works well. I've mentioned it before about Pixar. A lot of animated films will throw in some big names to try and make a draw, and it doesn't always work. But Pixar, mm. although, although they tend to have big names in all their films, they don't tend to go for just that shoehorn some big names in to play the voices of these characters. They just, and they, they very rarely <clears> build as well they might yeah. have big names in it but it is never that but i suppose as i suppose that. as their kids films the kids don't might not know or don't yeah. really care if yeah. if tom hanks or tim allen are doing the voice of woody and buzz or something like that they're not really yeah. bothered oh, uh, the other thing just on performances whoever the team of animators were that worked on her hair they deserve a range of applause because that was just yes. i mean that was like I heard it mentioned that it was like a character of its own, and I think that's true. There was one scene where she pulled the dad and the two of their hairs together, and like they managed to get contrast between the two and everything. It was just incredible. It, it You're was listening incredible. to the Tony and Guy podcast. <laughs> 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 Actually, they did two new bits of software purely to make this film. They had to create two new bits of modelling software purely to make it, and one of those was for her hair on its own, which is... Which is, again, it's just Pixar's attention to detail, uh, and they're striving to make things as perfect. Like, they might not always succeed, but the fact that they went, okay, we want her hair to be as realistic as possible, it's part of her character, right, well, we're gonna have to invent some software to do it then. Yeah, that speaks volumes of Pixar. But, uh, one final thing, as you're all cinema and film buffs, did we all get the Wicker Man reference? Oh, hang on. Which bit was that? I might have missed that. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the witch, when she goes back to the witch's cabin hut, house thing, yeah. and she's got like the, the answering machine effectively. Oh, she was off to the island, <clears throat> Stormlight. She was, yeah, she was off to the Wicker Man festival. Yeah. Oh, I missed that. Oh, unbelievable. <laughs> I love that film. <laughs> One of her wooden carvings was the uh, pizza truck from Toy Story, which appears in every Yes, episode. I was just yeah. about to say that. <laughs> I'm sure there's loads more little references we could find if yeah. we watched it again. Cause... Maybe I was maybe I was a bit early to say I wouldn't see things on second view. I'll definitely watch it again, though. Definitely. The thing is, right? I was I was looking for the Toy Story truck because I knew it had to be in there somewhere. And when I was when that carving shop was coming in, I was just like scanning everything quickly to find the, <laughs> the truck. Going just quickly you know, on your point about um, billion top stars, Steve. Yeah. I think. The, the difference with Pixar is they, when they have a film, people know it's a Pixar film, they're going to watch it. I think they have that reputation now where people see Disney Pixar above the, the title and they don't need to know who else is in it. Whereas studios like DreamWorks perhaps need to build, you know, yeah. the voice that's a draw. The name is the draw for Pixar. They don't need yeah. to do anything. They I mean, know it's, they're established. It's Disney. People always would go and see a Disney I mean, animation it's, it's, because of support it even a bank. It's, it's in, it was I suppose it's interesting, but probably a discussion for another day. But, I mean, Toy Story probably always would have visually looked impressive when it first came out. But what if the film was rubbish and had flopped? What was that meant for Pixar as a whole? Because that opening right. gambit was such a good film. Mm. And what, what yeah. if, what if it, had, what if it was rubbish? What if the plot was terrible? It didn't work? Kids didn't like Disney it. Wouldn't have worked. Disney wouldn't have worked with them again. And I think without they needed Disney. And now they're kind of like equal partners, really. Yeah. Uh, but at the time, well, Pixar, Disney, 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 yeah, exactly. Um, and D- Disney wouldn't have bought Pixar. Pixar probably would have gone under. And of course, it wasn't working at the beginning. That's that's the thing. You think of how things nearly go wrong. Uh, Woody was an absolute bastard in the original. Um, 
as we've mentioned on yeah. here before, in the original script. Um, and uh, again, Will Joss Wedden claims some credit for that, and he is listed as one of the scriptwriters there. Apparently, he came in and fixed it. Up, and, you know, he definitely says he came up with the wine, the frog line. I know that is definitely his line. I don't know about the rest of it, but what do you character change to Disney exec when they did the initial? Yes, it was, yeah. to Disney execs, and the Disney execs were like, "No, you can't have that. You can't have that." Disney films, I'm afraid. He's, he's too horrible. You need to make him, uh, you know, a bit more, a bit softer. I think that really really had Billy Crystal as um, Buzz as well, which I love Billy Crystal in Monsters Inc. And Billy Crystal says it's his biggest regret was turning down Toy Story, but I, I don't think it would have worked as well as Tim Allen. No, it's interesting. Did you know? You know, Disney actually nearly went under themselves. You know, Poker Hunters came out and nearly bankrupted them. Really? I didn't know that. Yeah. I didn't realise how close it got. Oh, it was pre-war, and people oh. weren't just people just weren't going to see their films. They were plowing money into films, and people weren't going they, to see. They them. nearly had to turn off Walt's cryogenic chamber. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, they recovered. I think Pixar. They are. They have got a talented bunch of people there. I think it, they would have continued even if Disney didn't sort of save them. Just might not be the name that they are these days. Exactly. Yeah. Steve Jobs was involved, so they were always going to get somewhere. Um, yeah. You know, he was heavily involved there. But yeah, I think the fact that Toy Story worked the way it did and Disney coming on board, they, they, are, they are the new Disney in a sense. Um, you know, they have that mark of quality about everything that they do and people will always go and see a film regardless of the reviews, regardless of who's in it because they're, they're interested in seeing what Pixar do and and there's not really any other studios that you can say that about. I think they're a bigger draw than Disney themselves now. I think you're right. I think I think Pixar now is a better reputation than, than Disney's pure animation stuff. Yeah. Well, uh, that's it for this week's Failed Critics Review. Uh, thanks to James, Owen, Jerry, and I suppose myself. Um, thanks to Kevin <laughs> McLeod of Incompetech.com for our music. And thanks to all of you for listening. Hope you'll be back next time.